Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 100, yes, 100 of the Feeling Good podcast. David, uh, I'm in a celebratory mood today. How about you? Absolutely. It seems like just two weeks ago that you were on the driveway, my front driveway, and I think it was before or after a Sunday hike or some kind of event, and saying, David, have you ever thought of doing a podcast? And I didn't yeah. even know what it was, but you made it sound so appealing and so easy that yeah. I said, let's go for it. And here we are 100, 100 episodes later. It's yeah. fantastic. And, and uh, I, I kind of uh, uh, miss being at the Murrieta Studios today because uh, we're doing this uh, remotely, but we'll explain in a moment why. But we'll open the champagne definitely uh, in the near future. Yeah, we'll have to have, uh, when you're over here, we'll have to have some champagne and some hats and some things to blow on. Yes, and yes for sure. Confetti and all that. Yeah. I'm going to mess up your living room. <laughs> At any rate, today... I have to say a big thank you to you, Fabrice. Oh. And, and also, uh, not only for your friendship, but for your brilliance and professionalism. I'm, everywhere I go, I constantly get wonderful comments about about Fabrice, about about you, and uh, it just, uh, it's just a great honor to, uh, to have you as a friend and colleague. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much, David. I very much uh, appreciate your generosity and all that uh, you've been able to, to teach me and all of us. So. so I would like to introduce today a very distinguished guest. Uh, we are very, very fortunate on this uh, episode to present to you Mark Noble, and uh, Mark had uh, the opportunity to visit us at the, the Tuesday group recently. Um, Mark is a Stanford-trained uh, geneticist and molecular biologist. He's considered one of the founders of the field of stem cell research. So that's who we're going to be talking with today. And uh, he's actually been developing a model of how Team CBT affects the brain. He very graciously agreed to present this model at the Tuesday group. So this is not a fully polished model, but uh, you'll see that uh, he makes some very interesting correlations. He's uh, using this um, uh, SNEF model, S-N-E-F-F, -F, stands for structures, networks, emotions, frames, and filters. And then he's going to link these concepts to the prefrontal cortex, to the amygdala, the sympathetic nervous system, and then he will describe the four steps of uh, team, T-E-A-M, and he will link them to each of the uh, SNF models. So I think this is going to be a very interesting thing. And we, we've titled this uh, episode, uh, The New Microneurosurgery, uh, because of how he equates the precision that uh, team is able to bring to psychotherapy to uh, a form of microneurosurgery. So uh, uh, without further ado, um, I'd like to bring in Mark, who's uh, calling us from, where are you right now, Mark? I'm in Rochester, New York. Welcome right. to my living room. All right. Well, 
Thank you. Welcome to our respective uh, offices. So just to let our listeners know, we're going to be playing on this podcast the presentation that you gave at the um, Tuesday group. So this is a monologue that uh, you've been uh, giving. All. And um, then you had some afterthoughts about what you presented to bring some precisions about different topics. And what we will do is we will um, uh, have a little conversation about those afterthoughts that will be presented after the, uh, the presentation. Sounds good? Sounds great. Yeah, sounds so, so Mark, unless you have something to add by way of introduction to your presentation, we're going to go right ahead and, and play it. I'll make one oh, quick, oh, quick, quick comment that uh, the, we're kind of like Christopher Columbus when he first stepped foot on American soil. It's a new land, the brain, and uh, we don't really know kind of how the brain works. And, and what Mark has done is to create a model of how psychotherapy works, uh, how it's affecting brain, brain structures. It, it's very preliminary, but it, it could be like, you know, an enormous first, first step in a, in a journey that will lead to emerging of our understanding of psychotherapy and, and, and brain function. So it, it, we're very excited to uh, have you with us, Mark, and I'm very grateful that you're sharing your incredibly brilliant uh, mind and knowledge of the brain with us and explaining, helping us explain and understand, you know, what, what we're doing when we work with people who are depressed and see them rapidly being transformed into to joy. David, you're so kind, and it's such an honor to be here with the two of you. And I hope that the listeners will find this information interesting, provocative. And as, as you say, this is a work in progress in its early stages. So when people find things they disagree with, Please get in touch with us. We love criticism. All right. Fantastic. So um, let's listen to your presentation. We're here at the Tuesday group at Stanford, and um, it was just, a, a, I thought, a fabulous opportunity to get some of your thinking while, while you were in town. Um, Dr. Mark Noble was, is a Stanford-trained geneticist and uh, I guess molecular biologist, and he, he, he's usually doing hardcore, you know, research on, on brain and brain tissue and effects of drugs on, on central nervous system uh, functioning, but has developed uh, a real interest in team therapy, and uh, I was just delighted when you contacted me a, a number of months ago that you were coming out here and joined our Sunday hike, uh, proved yourself to be just a fun, wonderful, down-to-earth guy. So let's uh, introduce ourselves for the podcast audience. That we're, we're here at Stanford. We have a group of, uh, you know, 25 or 30 folks, but we're at the end of the table where the recording will occur, and we have a few folks here. Uh, why don't you start out, Danielle? Um, I'm Danielle Levy. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm one of the co-leaders for the Tuesday group. And I'm Jill Levitt. I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, and I also co-lead the group with David and Danielle, and I'm the director of training at the Feeling Good Institute in Mountain View. Hi, I'm Jacob Towery. I am an adolescent and adult psychiatrist in private practice in Palo Alto. And now world-renowned author of... The Antidepressant Book. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and about to appear on 
Well, I was of it maybe the Today Show. Um, and was really excited about the Washington Post article last week. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm David Burns. As those of you who listen to the podcast know, and Fabrice, who's usually here, we're just going to record it and then send the recording to Fabrice. He, he couldn't join us. So so take it away, Mark, and then we'll try to ask questions or, or whatever as you're as you're going along. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a little background first. I'm, I'm Mark Noble. I'm from the University of Rochester. My central interest these days is transitioning our laboratory discoveries into clinical trials with a focus on problems such as malignant brain tumors, traumatic injury to the nervous system. I, I got in touch with David originally because in part of our studies, we had found that certain antidepressants became very toxic in the context of compromised function of lysosomes, which are organelles in the cell that are essential for supplying nutrients to the cell. And their uh, function is compromised in lysosomal storage disorders, but also in Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, many other instances. And this was really concerning. When we did animal experiments with, with models of lysosomal storage disorders, these antidepressants, some of which are very widely used, made the animals far worse. So I thought I needed to become much more knowledgeable about how depression is treated. That's what led me to team CBT in the podcast. So I took advantage of the next planned visit to California to contact David see about learning more, he kindly invited me to join with Sunday Walks Tuesday training sessions. Sunday hikes, you mean? Sunday hikes, yes. Gotta break a sweat. Yeah. So it was it was the the first session here at a Tuesday group that that really got me hooked on the, the questions that, that we'll discuss tonight. And that was a session where David and Jill shared with everyone the video of a woman who had had a decade of severe intractable depression. This was the woman whose daughter had gone out to play and had been shot in the face with a high-powered air rifle. And mom had not had a moment's relief from blaming herself and worrying about her daughter and obviously was, was, was terribly depressed by this incident. And in watching the, um, the interaction with her and seeing this woman brought to happiness over the course of a two-hour conversation, even though I'd been listening to the Team CBT podcast, seeing this actually in action just made me so curious about this. How in the world can this occur? Team CBT can only work because it's aligned with the way that the nervous system works. And I also thought that the potency of Team CBT potentially could provide us with new insights into how the nervous system works, not just in the context of emotional maladies, also at a more general level. So this was an interesting puzzle. And as, as David has mentioned, that it's not a problem that is understood. We don't have an insight into how Team CBT works. So the academic effort is interesting to me as a neuroscientist, but the larger question is whether developing an understanding like this can be helpful for others. When I shared the current version of my thinking about this problem with David on this past Sunday's hike, he kindly suggested 
that I come here, share my current thoughts with all of you. So I'm, I'm grateful that you are willing to do this. This is going to be very helpful in understanding how to better communicate these evolving hypotheses. And I want to understand how to communicate them to the community of therapists and the community of individuals who rely on therapists in order to find a more satisfactory emotional balance in their lives. So if this way of understanding the, the, how Team CBT works within the brain is helpful, then I'll attempt to write everything up as a proper book on the topic. So and thank you in advance for the help that you're going to provide in helping me to understand this. Let me start with two conclusions. One conclusion is that I think that if you started with our most sophisticated understanding of how the nervous system works, particularly the human nervous system, and you wanted to build a way from scratch of trying to help people with emotional maladies, what you would come up with is something that looks very much like Team CBT. Second conclusion is that one of the things that is being done with Team CBT is a form of highly advanced microneurosurgery at a level that you could never do surgically, you can never do this chemically. There is no approach to doing this that is more refined than language because language is what defines our humanness. Let's go through how I get to these conclusions. The, the acronym to remind me to um, mention everything is SNF, which is not SNF, but has an E instead of the I. And what SNF stands for is structures, networks, emotions, frames, and filters. There are lots of structures in the nervous system that are relevant to understanding depression. But in order to try and, and, and keep this relatively brief, let's just focus down on a couple of them. One of them is the amygdala. The amygdala is key to understanding emotional response. It is largely understood as a part of the brain that is responsive to things that would cause you to be fearful. That's an oversimplification, but we can use it as a, as a working model. The amygdala in individuals with depression functions differently than it does in individuals who don't have depression. And you can see this in many ways. And this, these are some of the areas where, where imaging studies actually can, can tell you something potentially interesting. So, for example, if you take photographs of angry faces, sad faces, threatening faces, happy faces, and you show them to people who are depressed and people who are not depressed, but you show them too rapidly for them to come to conscious awareness, you see differences in the amygdala response to these images. It is thought that a, some changes in the amygdala are very relevant to understanding depression. Now, the amygdala is a very old organ. It's present in fishes. It is critical to understanding our response to the environment. Just let that give a quick uh, question. Please. There are differences in amygdala responses to and happy faces, angry faces, mm -hmm. that, that, that type of thing. And are those differences in, uh, between uh, undepressed and depressed? Is that what, what yes. you're referring to? Yeah. Yes. 
Second part of the nervous system, very important for this conversation, is the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is one of the most human parts of the human brain. It is thought to be a place where values live. It is one of the only parts of the nervous system that has a direct, no intervening stops connection to the amygdala. And there is a widely discussed theory that one of the things that goes wrong in depression is the conversation between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So one of the ways that you can think of this is that the job of the amygdala is to say, tiger, tiger, and starts activating the body's responses that are necessary to respond to that. And what the prefrontal cortex does is says, yes, it's a tiger, or calm down, it's just the wind, it's just leaves, not a tiger. Another part of the, of the brain that I mentioned, it's called the anterior cingulate cortex. The name doesn't really matter that much at the moment, but it's to get an understanding of pain pathways. The evolution of our response to pain is, is really neat. So pain is something that is one of the earliest necessary evolutionary responses. Bacteria will move away from noxious stimuli. Pain has been studied in aplesia, it has been studied in drosophila, it has been studied in all sorts of species. And the response to pain is obviously very necessary from an evolutionary perspective because if something hurts, you want to move away from it. The way evolution works is that once you have something that works, when you have a new need, what is there tends to get reutilized. And if you look at the evolution of different species, one of the things that, that I, I think is, is important is that you get to a point fairly, fairly early in the evolution of certainly vertebrates where you have to respond to dominance hierarchies, where there are social structures that are very important. And it turns out that those responses map onto the pain pathways. So, And some of the results on these studies are absolutely remarkable, where you can take people who have undergone, who are undergoing severe social sadness, say a breakup of a partnership, and help them feel better by giving them Tylenol or other pain relievers. The We talk about depression. We say it hurts. It goes through me like a knife. We use the language of pain to describe it. And we're describing these real feelings because all our feelings are, all we are, is our brain, is what our brain tells us is going on. Okay. One last piece of the nervous system that's important in this, and that's the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, by the way, the, the part, the evolution of vertebrates with the dominance and hierarchical networks, what part of the brain is that? That, it, it maps at least partly into the anterior cingulate cortex. Okay. The sympathetic nervous system is our fight-or-flight response. So what happens when you detect a tiger, at a, even at a subliminal level, is amygdala is activated, 
the amygdala through a series of intermediate pathways activates the sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system, among other things, increases the heart rate, stimulates the adrenal gland. The adrenal gland releases adrenaline. It also releases glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids have the gluco prefix because they are involved, among many other things, in glucose metabolism. And what happens is that parts of your body start pumping out glucose as fuel for your muscles so you can get away from the tiger or fight it or whatever you need to do. Okay, so those are the, the structural parts that I think are the minimum that we need. Then there's networks. The nervous system has, it's estimated, 100 billion neurons. Each one of them has the capacity to have a 1,000 different interactions. So 100 billion times a 1,000 is more stars than there are in the Milky Way galaxy. And we each have that inside each of our brains. Those neurons are interacting with each other in networks. So memories are not held in individual cells. They're held in aggregations of cells that may be dispersed widely across the nervous system, but they're interconnected together. They don't form a single unit that is unique to that memory, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but they have interconnections with, with many other types of neurons. Critical for thinking about chemical interventions in depression and anxiety is that although we have 100,000 billion neurons and connections, we only have identified about 100 neurotransmitters, the chemicals that nerve cells use to talk to each other. So they're used over and over and over again in many different circumstances. Neural networks that are doing very different things will use the same neurotransmitter. Okay, now emotions. Just a, a simple mm -hmm. point there is that if you have a drug that affects some one of these 100 uh, neurotransmitters in one way or the other, it, it, it's naive to think it's going to have some kind of specific effect on the brain because the neurotransmitters are involved in millions and billions of networks that have a wide range of functions. Right? That, that's exactly right. And, and that is one of the, the fundamental flaws in the way that we think about things like antidepressants, I, th I believe. Okay, let's consider emotions. First, emotions are very powerful. They're supposed to be very powerful. Throughout evolution, they are what cause you to do what you need to do to stay alive. Emotions are motivations. They came long before language. Behaviors that look like emotions can be observed in species that are very far removed from humans. You know, we have fancy language that we use to talk about them, to write poetry about them, to write songs about them. But there they are, and any of you who have domestic animals are very skilled at recognizing the emotions of your dogs, or your cats, or any other pets that you might have. So emotions are response patterns. They have an evolutionary purpose of providing a pattern of behavior that increases the likelihood of survival. They're powerful. They have to be powerful. One way to think of this is that emotions are not conclusions. They're motivations to do something. 
So even though emotions are very powerful, there's a paradox, which is that they represent a very small proportion of our brains. And all of you, all of you who are engaged as therapists, you have people who come to you who lead extraordinarily successful lives, who are doing very complicated jobs, yet who are miserable, who are who feel incapacitated by these emotional storms. For example, the famous actor and writer Stephen Fry discusses his years and years of trying to deal with being with having a bipolar disorder. And during that time, you see clips of him doing his work on television, on stage, in interviews, in debates. He looks perfectly normal. But inside, the storms were raging. So you, it's a very confusing thing for people because you feel like your whole body is being, your whole brain is being involved in this. But in fact, they involve just a small part of the neural networks that are critical in the nervous system. Emotions have the potential to be very transient. And what changes them is new information. And I think that's critical to understanding the power of Team CBT. So that's evolutionarily necessary. It's also the nature of pain pathways, right? If you, the pain goes, if the noxious stimulus goes away, the pain goes away. So a, a great example of this is, say you're walking down the street and a hundred yards away, you see someone who looks like a high school, your best high school friend who you haven't seen in years. And you're so excited to see this person and you wave and you smile and they wave and they smile back at you and you're filled with joy and anticipation that you're going to see them. And now you get 50 yards away and you realize it's not your friend at all. And they were waving to somebody in back of you. So your emotional state changes in an instant. That's how it's supposed to be. But emotions also can be long lasting. And that also is how it's supposed to be. So if you have a chronic injury of some sort, you need to convalesce. You need to curl up in a ball. And what does depression feel like? It feels like a chronic injury. And it's working in part, at least through these pain pathways, eliciting this behavior that is evolutionarily necessary in order to recover. Okay. So continuing pain is different from acute pain. The response need is different. Where do emotions come from? Just to one, uh, summarize one point here is that you're saying that the, the, ner the networks that uh, modulate pain, that create pain, are the same networks, at least in part, that create emotions like, like depression or anger. It, 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 I think that's a, a little oversimplified because, but it's, it's not an unreasonable way of looking at it. But I think that for the con, for the, 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 this early version of, of discussing this, I think it's not bad. Yeah, Jacob. I, I love everything you're saying. I think it's insightful. I feel like I'm learning a lot. One question I want to ask you about this last idea of transient emotions versus long lasting right. emotions is, I totally agree with you that emotions can often be transient right. for us and they change quickly. And I buy the idea that evolutionarily there might be some advantage mm -hmm. to people having this kind of long-lasting emotional pain. But do we know mechanistically why people who are depressed might not be able to 
have their emotions be more transient, why they wouldn't be able to have an experience and then kind of so quickly. So, so in, in part, I'm going to ask you to remember that question, okay. to ask towards the end. But it does bring up a point that I think is, is really critical to understand, which is where do emotions come from? Emotions are not often, maybe usually, not cognitively driven. So emotions come into existence, it is believed, in a very different way. Our brain is constantly surveilling the body. The brain is telling us what the interpretations are, the information it gets from the rest of the body. So there's no real brain-body distinction. This is one organism where the pieces are working together. If you have, if you encounter something that causes a, a fear reaction, which may be something that you see and recognize, but maybe something subliminal, and you activate the amygdala, you activate the sympathetic nervous system, the brain responds to this by saying there's something to be afraid of. And that's your emotional state. It's an emotion when it rises to conscious awareness. Before it rises to conscious awareness, most people these days don't call it an emotion. But we, there's plenty of evidence from doing fMRI studies, other kinds of studies, that show that you can get many of the physiological changes that are parts of the emotional response without them coming to conscious awareness. Obviously, way more complex than this, but it is a very important concept that when we are having an emotional reaction, a lot of that is driven by the brain surveilling the information it's receiving, and the brain can be fooled. So, for example, um, I, ha I had a, a, to give you an example from a pain pathway, I had a pinched nerve in my shoulder, typical pinched nerve type of damage where my hand felt like it was being crushed in a vice. My forearm felt like it had been being beaten with hammers. If I put traction on my neck for 10 minutes, all the pain went away. There was no tissue damage. There was nothing wrong with my hand. There was nothing wrong with my forearm. But because of the pinched nerve, my brain was getting signals that sounded like, that looked like pain signals. And the brain interpreted them. And because all we are is our brains, I was in excruciating agony, right? These are referred pain disorders, and they're pretty frequent. So the brain is creating reality for us on every level. How does it do that? Well, one of the critical concepts about our thinking is what are called frames. We discuss thinking very often as though we are dealing with sentences, linear pieces of thought, like, you know, like individual genes of thought. And that's not how it works, that our nervous system is organized to deal in terms of what the neurolinguists call frames. And one of the, the, the great people in this area is a guy by the name of George Lakoff up in Berkeley. 
who's written spectacularly about this topic. Highly recommend his writings on this. Okay, so what are frames? So let's say you go to a restaurant. That act of going to a restaurant activates a whole cascade of different frames. You're going to travel. You're going to walk in a door. You're going to see tables. Someone is going to perhaps lead you to a table. You're going to sit down. That you're going to be given a menu. You're going to choose from the menu what you want to eat. You're going to order things. They're going to come. You're going to taste them. You might share them with your friends. At the end of it, you're going to pay for it. You're going to get up again. You're going to leave. You're going to travel somewhere else. All of these frames and many, many more frames are activated by that act of going to a restaurant. Individual restaurants may cause different types of responses. Like a Chinese restaurant will elicit certain types of food memory frames that are different from going to an Italian restaurant. But there's enormous overlap of these frames. Those are fact-based frames. There's also emotion-based frames. Say you're going to the restaurant and you're going with a friend or several friends who you really like to spend time with. Well, that triggers a certain type of emotion-based frame. Let's say it's a business meeting. That's a different kind of emotion-based frame. Let's say it's people you don't really want to be with, but it's a social obligation. That's a different frame. Let's say that a member of that group likes to get drunk, and you're the one who always gets tasked with making sure that they get home safely. So that's another emotional frame, all of which get activated. There are also values-based frames. And I think values-based frames also are critical to understanding Team CBT. The values-based frames, for example, ones that we can consider, it is a widely shared value that being dishonest is bad, telling the truth is good. We're going to get to that in, in a little bit of detail later, because I think that that's a critical frame set for understanding Team CBT. There are also values-based frames that we start building in our nerve, in our brains right from the time that we start perceiving the environment. So there are frames that are culturally specific and there are frames that are universal. So, for example, you're two or three months old, you're thirsty, you see a fluid being poured into a vessel, the volume goes up. Universally, up is better, down is less good. When you're hurt, when you're scared, someone picks you up and holds you. You're exposed to their body warmth. And universally, in every culture of the world, we refer to kind people as warm people. So there are these deep, deep structures, deep, deep networks that all become activated anytime we're doing anything. Okay, last F is for filters. And filters, of course, are something that you are all extremely aware with, aware of. So let's call filters the, the it generally the type of filter where one person has a certain type of event and responds to it as though it's a good event, and another person has exactly the same event and refers to it, feels it, experiences it as a bad event. Right? Those are the filters that, of course, are the core of understanding cognitive distortions. Okay, so those are the, the pieces that I think you need to know. Now we're going to go into a session and see how these pieces play out.
at least experiment with it. Okay, so how does a session start? First thing you do is testing. Now, you obviously approach testing as the desire to get quantitative information on the state of your patient at that moment. But it's way, way more sophisticated than that. So the daily mood log has in it, as you know, a number of things that must be satisfied. The first is choosing a moment or an event. One of the common characteristics of many individuals with depression is the use of language of helplessness, not being able to make choices, not being able to feel their choices mean anything. Not, And in fact, many of the early childhood causes of depression, contributors of dep to depression, are having events that you have no control over, right? At the, you know, a six-year-old kid, their parent dies, their sibling dies, they get raped, any of these things, they're learning that life is not something where you have choices. Life happens to you. And what are you doing? The first thing you're doing is you're giving a person a choice. That's really important. You're activating a, the dialogue between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala because you're now going to specify all of these different categories of descriptor words that give information about the characteristics of the emotional state at that time. Not only that, you're going to give them scores. You're quantifying this. So you're bringing in all these scores of more is bigger, right? And you're bringing in these scores that you have to use a dialogue with your cortical part to interact with the amygdala to give them scores. So you have someone who it is believed is having trouble with a dialogue between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, and the first thing you do is you give them a task that starts that dialogue. Okay, then what do you do? You proceed into empathy. Empathy is about... In, in this model, one of the things that empathy is about is reorienting perception of dominance hierarchies. What is the language of depression? I am a lower individual. I am not worthy. I would like to be invisible. I would like, just please ignore me. Just, I'm not worthy. That's the language of being way down in a dominance hierarchy. What are you doing during empathy? You're doing the human equivalent of, of grooming, right? Of primate grooming. You And we do it with language. And, you know, we also do it with touch, which is very effective. But the extraordinary specificity of language allows us to do it in a way that other species can't do. And you're doing it in a very particular way. And it took me several months of listening to David being the expert and David working with patients to recognize this. That, and I, Jill, I hear this in, in you also. Um, so when, when David is being the expert, he sounds like an expert. 
when David is interacting with a patient, he sounds like an equal. He's blowing up the dominance hierarchy. He is blowing up the idea that I'm higher than you, and he's doing it with all sorts of subliminal clues that are related to pitch, that are related to the structure of language, that are related to the way that you look at someone, that you interact with someone. What does that do? It calms down the amygdala. And you take your time doing that. That's so critical. You don't move on until you get a perfect empathy score. And what does a perfect empathy score mean? It means that you've heard the story. We're a storytelling species. Everything that we do is about that. And one of the, the things that has been really striking to me in listening to various sessions is that Jill and David, the two of you who I've heard doing this, when you are establishing empathy, it's not just that you're demonstrating that you're listening. You're demonstrating that you heard the story. And... I think that that's a vital part of understanding how to apply these techniques successfully because we're a storytelling species. By repeating a story, you demonstrate you really heard. Moreover, in all these exercises, you're writing. Now, yeah, on the Sunday walks, it's conversational, but within a session, you're writing. What is that doing? You're bringing in motor cortex, visual system different parts of cognition in order to remember how to spell the words and organize them properly, which means you're activating all these frames that are necessary to do that. Okay. Then you ask what you're going to work on. So once again, you're conferring choice to someone who feels that choices make no difference in their life because they're, no matter what choice they make, they're screwed. And you're giving them a choice as to what you're going to do. Then you get specific, and you're doing that. You're having more dialogue between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, and you're taking a lot of time to do this. So during the course of this time, it's not just the amygdala that calms down. You're taking enough time for the sympathetic nervous system to calm down. The reason that I, I mention that is because the sympathetic nervous system and the amygdala work on different time scales to keep us alive. The amygdala is rapid response and the ability to rapidly turn off. The sympathetic nervous system doesn't turn off quickly. And that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective because you don't really know whether you got away from the tiger. You don't really know whether you knocked out your opponent in a, in a battle for dominance hierarchy. you got to be ready to respond again instantly so the sympathetic nervous system takes a while to calm down. So you can think of it as you're having an argument with your partner and your partner says to you something that you did last night that was really awful and I'm really angry at you and we have to talk about this and I am so annoyed and you respond and you respond if you're skilled in the five secrets you respond in a particular way if you're not you respond in other ways but you respond you get to a point where you think you've made progress if you've done it well you have established some kind of more calm reaction you go that's done, I've settled that, we're okay. And then 30 seconds later, your partner says, but 
Remember what you did last week? I am so angry about that. Well, the sympathetic nervous system is still active. The brain perceives that the sympathetic nervous system is still active, and the emotions are still going strong. You're taking enough time for the sympathetic nervous system to calm down, too. And there's experiments that I think that that suggests that could be easily done to test that hypothesis. Okay. So you're saying that, uh, just to keep things real simple, the prefrontal cortex can send a message down to the amygdala that this is a tiger here of some kind, which could be your partner shouting at you or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and that's an instantaneous uh, connection. And then the amygdala will, in the case of fear, and probably anger and other emotions as well, really uh, send out glucocorticoids and uh, get the heart, heart racing and things like that, and that the, the sympathetic nervous system, those effects are much slower to change, whereas the amygdala can be flashing on and off like a strobe light right. almost. Right, right. And certainly in depression, there's great concern about whether the amygdala stays active for longer periods of time, and certainly under stress it can do that, which has all sorts of devastating effects on, on health Okay, so now what do you do next? You provide the patient the choice of pressing the magic button. You say, I can make this all disappear. You can choose to make this all disappear if you press this magic button. And many of the people you deal with want to do away with the pain, so you say yes. And then what do you say? You respond by saying, well, you know, I'm not so sure because I think that these all these negative things you're saying are saying things that are wonderful and awesome about you. Here's a person who feels like they're a nobody, like they're at the bottom of the pile, and you're just saying to them, I think there's things that are wonderful and awesome about you. And now you activate all this these responses of, what are you talking about? I'm an addict, my wife has just left me, I got fired in my job, whatever has happened in my life. And you you think there's something good about that? So you've activated more frames, curiosity, what is going on? What in the world are you talking about? Well, then you start identifying cognitive distortions. And in identifying cognitive distortions, one of the really cool things one of the cool things that you do is when you identify one, you say, is that true? Is that true? So part of our core value frames are being dishonest, telling the truth. You're now activating the frames that you're being dishonest with yourself. That's bad. That's not what you want. You're being dishonest. Okay. Now you're going to proceed along with the discussion of these and move to methods. And there's so many methods that you know we, we can't deal with all of them. Let's just let's choose externalization of voices as as, as one that's very powerful. So in that you have a cognition part. You have a quantification part because you're saying when you go through these techniques, who won? Did you win big? Did you win huge? 
and you're asking, is it true? You know, are you are you bullshitting me or is it true? Truth is good. Lying is bad. So you're bringing those frames into the process too. In this, you are activating, I mean, who knows how many different frames, but if you let your imagination it's run. actually in, four. There's four. Well, million. yeah, four million. <laughs> and, and, and it's very hard for us to, to analyze them, that you can do very clever linguistics experiments to get at certain aspects of frames. But the place in which they reside in the brain, the chemical transmitters that they use, the neural networks that are part of them, we don't know how to analyze that. And... As, as David has said, when you do functional magnetic resonance imaging, it's useful for some things, but it's giving you this, you know, 30,000 foot view, whereas what you want to do in therapy is get right down there on the ground and really intervene with enormous specificity. Okay. What can you draw out of this? One, I think, is what are you actually trying to do at each step of this process? Right? If you understand what you're trying to do, hopefully you can do it better. This empathy setting is not just about establishing empathy that you get a good score on. It's about equalizing the relationship. It's about social grooming. It's about having um, a demonstration that the person has been heard truly in a way that tells the story of their problem. You're doing cognition all the time. You're doing writing. You're bringing things in. By the way, the writing part, I think, is one of the critical aspects of why homework is so important. Because if you just think about these things, it's easy for them to disappear. If you write them down, you're bringing in motor cortex, visual system, cognitive systems. Moreover, there's a view in memory theory that humans can only actively remember seven things at one time. And some people say five things at one time, but it's a fairly small number. Once you're doing these written exercises and you have this all in front of you, you have access to all of this information very readily. Okay, so where does this become potentially valuable in understanding how Team CBT works? So what I've talked about so far is how Team CBT can be applied. What does it mean about how it might work? One of the things that, that David has talked about that is very interesting and puzzling is why does it work to focus on a specific event, on a specific moment of time? So David's answer is that he looks at this as a fractal problem. That's a very unsatisfying answer for someone like me. Because I understand what the words mean, but I don't understand what it means structurally. I don't understand what it means in terms of how the brain works. If I think about it in terms of overlapping frames, I now think I understand it. Any depressing incident, any anxiety-inducing incident, any moment, will have many, many frames that overlap with any other depressing incident any other anxiety-inducing incident. So you're working on all of those frames 
at the same time with this one intervention. Very different from traditional psychotherapy. We're trying to drill down on getting to some disturbing event, and you focus on that with a laser-like focus. This is using the way the nervous system works in terms of all these networks interacting with each other in, a, in an extraordinarily powerful way, I, I believe. And I think that that is key to understanding what makes it durable. And this is the, the, the last thing that I have to say before we go into questions. And what I've said so far, I can give you references on. There's wonderful writings by people like Antonio Damasio and, and Ramachandran and uh, Joseph Ledoux and all sorts of brilliant people whose, whose work I, I've drawn on in order to try and formulate these ideas. Now we're going to go into something that is a bit more skeptical, but is, is kind of neat, I think. It has some explanatory value. When you're talking about fractals, you are talking about what are called in mathematics complex systems. Complex systems are the nature of our universe. The laws of complex systems are as much the core of our universe as F equals MA and E equals MC squared. And the complex systems mathematics have some very interesting properties. If you build a complex system, and the one that I, that I think is most interesting in this regard, if you build a complex system, which happens automatically, these things can be tend to be self-organized, you have homeostasis that occurs. One of the most difficult problems in evolutionary biology has been trying to understand where homeostasis comes from, the ability to reset back to a core value. And people have really puzzled on that because how do you get all these different parts of the body and the cells working together, these different enzyme systems and metabolite systems? How in the world did evolution select for something so extraordinarily complex as that? And what people studying complex systems have discovered is that if you have a complex system, by mathematical necessity, it exhibits homeostatic behavior. Turns out it's not a biology problem, it's a math problem. And all of life is complex systems biology. The way our brain works is complex systems biology. Okay. Once you're dealing with a complex system, there are certain things that also occur by the nature of having a complex system, which is that you can have homeostats in different states. We use language like that to describe things like that of tractor basins. So we think of this with two valleys with a hill between, and you may be poised at the top of the hill to begin with, and you move into one of the tractor basins. So Many of us think about this in terms of development and why do you become one cell type or another and why can't you just easily become switch from being a nerve, a nerve cell to a muscle cell that you're in these attractor basins and these kind of, of mathematical analyses of development are, are being pursued by a lot of people. But in terms of understanding emotional maladies, one of the things that is so striking is that it's hard to move from one base into another. 
Think of these as gravity wells, where you have to achieve a certain escape velocity in order to move from one to the other. If you look at individuals who are depressed, if you look at individuals who are happy, these states are pretty homeostatic. If you look at the outcomes of a successful Team CBT session, these outcomes are pretty durable. So they're also exhibiting homeostasis. So how do you move from one homeostatic state, from the gravity well of depression, to the gravity well of happiness? We're going to put it in simple pictorial terms. When, when you're treating depression, the patient is stuck in this valley, and everywhere they go is up, so they just get stuck there. And we want them to get up over a hill so they get over into another valley, kind of a happiness valley. And the question you raised is, how do we get them from one to the other so quickly? What does that have to do with brain function, fractals, etc.? Right, and, and, and the, the very the essence of Team CBT. And what distinguishes Team CBT from many other forms of psychotherapy. What do you do in psychotherapy? You drill down. Well, what the mathematicians have shown over and over again, if you're in a homeostatic state and you just push on one node at a time or two nodes at a time, it's really hard to shift to another homeostatic state. If you push on a lot of nodes at the same time, it's more effective to switch. <clears throat> and what are you doing by activating all of these frames and working with all of these frames? You're bringing many, many nodes into the mix, right? Many hands working together to make the work light. You're putting more energy into the system. You are now succeeding in moving someone to another homeostatic state that has durability. So, yeah, there are types of events that can move you from one to another very quickly if they are emotionally strong enough. You know, a devastating loss can push you into a depressed state, except that so many of the studies indicate that it is the buildup of multiple events that are the more powerful predictor of whether or not a person is going to be depressed or whether they're going to be anxious. So you're, I think, possibly taking advantage of the fact that, that our brain, like every other piece of biology, works as a complex system. That means it has certain rules that it follows. And in bringing all these different networks together, all these different frames together through these different mechanisms, you are now being able to move someone into another homeostatic state. I think that's part of why this works. So now if you go back to these sessions, you see what's happening during the session. You're working on this part and this part and this part in the left and this part on the bottom. And you're working on fact-based frames, and you're working on emotion-based frames, and you're working on value-based frames, and you're bringing enormous energy into the system. That's an attempt at understanding it because if you start from the perspective of this being a complex system, these are the kinds of paths that, that you start thinking about. Now, there's all sorts of other things that we can discuss about what the implications are for this kind of reasoning for things like antidepressants. 
There's a whole bunch of questions, but let's let's open up for questions, including identifying areas where you think that what I'm saying is just complete blowing smoke, because I would love to, to have that pointed out to me also. Just one last summary comment on my, on my part. The fractal idea that we're working on in team therapy is we can only change a patient for one three or four second moment of their life. But when they change at that moment, suddenly everything will change. And we see that over and over again when the patient suddenly crushes the first negative thought, but really stops believing that there's a kind of an aha, and then the patient can blow all, all of their negative thoughts and feelings out of the water in, in almost all cases, not all, but in almost all cases. And then the, the, the depression score goes from, you know, 80 to, to 10 or zero or whatever. And so the, the, the depression is like a negative fractal, and, and that means it has all of these systems interconnected with it. So if a patient just comes for therapy and talks and talks and talks, as they sometimes do, some therapists specialize in having patients just talk and talk for 10 years or, or more before the patient starts to, to change. When you're just training the fractal to get stronger and stronger, the negative network and there instead we're just pouring a tremendous energy using all different kind of techniques on this one little fractal and the moment it shifts then it has all these other interconnected uh, s systems as well so you're changing a, a whole bunch of uh, neuronal networks uh, simultaneously I don't really know what I'm talking about so I'll shut up and take questions it sounds good though that's <laughs> yeah it sounds pretty good now, now, Jacob you, you had I ask you to hold one of your questions to the end. The chronicity. Yeah. Uh, why, why can some patients more readily pop out than others? Yeah. So the first time I came to the, a Tuesday meeting, I, I, I raised the question of what is the difference between an individual who responds in one session and an individual who responds in multiple requires multiple sessions and or months or years or months or years and the response they had that people suggested was basically along the lines that some people are just more complicated have more problems to solve that sounds very reasonable but i had an interesting conversation with mike christensen um, a couple weeks ago where i posed that question to him as to what he thought was the difference. And he said that as he thought about it, that he's getting these faster recoveries, but there's no difference in the type of people he's seeing. So he's coming to the conclusion that he's getting better at doing this. So when you look at why David, Jill are so effective. Jacob, from reading your wonderful book, I suspect that you're pretty effective. <laughs> that why do they do this? Is it because they're so charismatic? Is it because, you know, with, with David, you always have the concern that there's a placebo effect because he's so well known. Jill? People love you, but you're not as well known as David. Surely not. <laughs> so I think that there are skills to this. And, and one of my hopes is that by better breaking down what is going on at each instant in terms of how the nervous system works, that maybe that will help to guide skill acquisition mm -hmm. so that it's easier to become more and more effective at this. 
I think that, that that's that's something that's worth studying. Yeah, please. I, I just observation observing David and Jill. One thing that is very noticeable about both is the way they use words is so beautiful and so right on. Uh, the vocabulary, like when to use, we can do the same thing and it just doesn't turn out the same way. The timing of it, what word to use is really important and that's a really hard one to get right. So, so we should repeat the question. Yeah. Go ahead. So, so, so one of the things that, that, that you noticed about David and Jill is their beautiful choices of words and how they say the right things. They say the right things time after time, and, it, and it's really magical. And, and there's a timing on art. There's a timing, there's an art. I agree totally that, I mean, for me, when I first started trying to learn about this, it's very different from the way I look at it now. From the way I look at it now is... Basically, from the point of view of, of, of one of my mentors who once said to me, you know, Mark, you have to study music for a very, very long time before you can appreciate Mozart. And I think that is exactly right, that these, these, these skill the art is what is there, but it's also teachable. It's also learnable. If you understand what it is you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it. Jeff? First of all, what a great presentation. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. You, you're so yeah. That's very kind of you. Well, very kind of you to, to take your time tonight. I had a couple questions, but I think the, the most important one for me is um, agenda setting. To me, agenda setting is the key. That, yes. You know, because once, as David explains, you know, then patients are talking back to their unconscious resistance. That, to me, is the moment that shifts. Yes. And I wonder, can you incorporate agenda setting, and how would you do that in your model? Yeah, I have been puzzling about that <laughs> so much because. Can you, can you the yeah. So, so the, the question is, how would we incorporate agenda setting into this model, and? Because that's the key to rapid recovery. Because that's the key because to rapid recovery. Because it removes the patient's resistance. Once the patient is working with you on a team, you talked about equals rather than some hierarchical right. thing. And, and the patient begins to be proud of his or her symptoms. Then suddenly the resistance disappears. They don't view themselves as having a mental illness. We try to make them see that their depression, their shame, their anger, their hopelessness is a manifestation of what's most beautiful and positive about them and is really advantageous. And then once they take that, that position, we, we can help them to, to see that. that. That's kind of an aha moment, and they're almost recovered before we get into the methods part where we're challenging their neg negative thoughts. And that part is still very beautiful to, to blow things completely out of the water to get that fractal, that network totally uh, transformed. But that's that's the thing. It's, it's reducing the resistance uh, that, that allows for the rapid recovery. So, so you're, you're, you're totally you're reducing the resistance, but let, let me get your response to this. I'm just, you know, I'm in the beginning stages of trying to understand this. There's a lot that I'm, I'm reading about and puzzling about. In looking at other forms of psychotherapy, 
um, and practitioners, because there's a lot of stuff at YouTube that you can watch. You can look at sessions. You can see how people practice. One of the things that has really struck me is that Team CBT is a cognitive equivalent of one of the soft martial arts yeah, that uses the momentum of the opponent. Yeah. Many others are equivalents of the hard martial arts, yeah. where you're hitting back. Yeah. And I think that is a core difference, that you are utilizing this, this um, momentum of emotion. And... I think that and the flowing with all the negative emotions and say that you're oh you're hideously depressed. What a beautiful thing. Let's see right. what that shows about you that's that, that that's great. That's like a martial art thing. And they st- right, and they still have the momentum of having to disagree with you. Now, there's another aspect of disagreement that that, that I, I I don't know where this these thoughts are gonna lead, but what's the evolutionary value of disagreeing? Anyone who has raised kids knows that one of the early things that happens is, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And why? What is the value of that? Because what are we trying to teach kids as they're growing up? You know, in our modern world, we're saying things like, don't run across the street. Don't stick your finger in the electric socket. Saying no to that has a poor survival value. But you can't understand evolutionary processes by thinking about what's going on now. You have to think about them over the long term. And maybe that the neurological underpinnings that lead organisms to say no are critical to having any kind of change, to making any kind of new discoveries. You know, I... I'm guessing here, but it, it's it's I think it's a, a wonderful question. There's sort of an analogy to adolescence. Again, I, I really don't know how to think about it from an evolutionary mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. but right? I mean, don't isn't there something about like our when we're raising teens and they're saying, no, I want to figure it out my way. We think right. that's healthy, right? right. I mean, yeah. it's a pain in the neck, but it's healthy. Right. And it's healthy. If they're too comfy at home, they'll stay at home and never leave the nest, which exactly. is not what we want, right? Ex- exactly. And so and there I- is something about, you know, no, I'm going to figure it out my way and do it my right. way that, right. that may save right. people, and, right? And what happens when you look at primate troops? Yeah. They had some, and some species... The males migrate out, and some species, the females migrate mm-hmm. out, but somebody migrates yeah. out. Somebody right. says, I'm not staying here any longer. I'm going to do something else. Right. And that's that's a constant. But I, I'm, I'm slow because I can't figure out what this has to do with psychotherapy or saying no. Oh, I thought we were getting people parent- for no to yes. No, because with par- no, <laughs> no, because with paradoxical agenda setting, we're saying, oh, look at what all these things say about you. That's so beautiful. Right. You know, maybe you should hang on to your depression. And then they say, no. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, I'm right. going to get better, yeah, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's like the teenager being yeah. like, no, I don't yeah. want your this. I want to do it my way. The right? way that I thought about it, uh, time back to uh, what we were talking about, uh, the structures of the brain is. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see if we get to the level of 
analysis what happens to the uh, sympathetic nervous system when you get into the agenda setting Absolutely. Uh, step Absolutely. of it, right? It's the threat over now that no one's trying to make me change. And now I can actually relax and operate yeah. cognitively at a different level that may allow me to get to different conclusions. And these are experiments you can do because mm-hmm. you can look at the galvanic skin response as a very accurate measure mm. of anxiety, activation, things like this. And you, you can't do a two-hour um, Team CBT session in the giant fMRI machines where you're putting people inside these big magnets with all these clanking noises and stuff. But there are now helmets that people can wear that they can wear for prolonged periods so you can actually start to think about doing an entire Team CBT session through that, and you can make some really specific predictions that you could test, and you could probably learn stuff that, whether it's important in understanding this, I don't know, but if the first time that David and I had a chance to, to talk with each other, I was telling him about the work of a, a, a wonderful scientist by the name of Ed Taub. Ed Taub, he had been doing experiments where he put a nerve block into the shoulder of a monkey, and kept the nerve block active for several days. And at the end of it, nerve block wore off. The monkey's brain had learned that that arm didn't work, right? Learned uselessness. Mm. And the arm was fine, but the brain had learned it didn't work. So to fix it, what Taub did was he strapped the good arm in, across the body, so the monkey couldn't use it. So if the monkey was going to eat, it had to remember how to use the bad arm. In doing this, he developed a type of physical therapy that we call mass practice therapy. Most physical therapy is, you know, a two-hour session, three days a week if you're lucky. Mass practice is six or seven hours a day, five or six days a week. Thousands and thousands of repetitions. It's extraordinarily effective. It's so effective that Taub and others who do this have taken people like famous pianists who get a stroke and lose use of one of their arms and restore them to performing on stage. It's amazingly effective. And for years and years and years, Taub's work was not well appreciated, even though patients were recovering. And then what happened was that somebody decided to do imaging studies. And what did they find? They found that patients treated this way had different patterns of activation in the brain. Well, of course they did because they had regained all this motor movement. There's no surprise now. But that got published in time and Newsweek. And now everybody was paying attention to, to the good Dr. Taub. Science does not always work in a logical way in terms of appreciating these things. One last question. And okay, then we have sure. to... Mark, I really like this model. I think it, it's it's elegant. I think it explains really well a lot of the mm-hmm. reasons Team CBT right. works so effectively. So there's one point you hit on that I want to make sure I'm understanding correctly, and I think it has very practical applications. Mm-hmm. So I love this idea of homeostatic states and the mm-hmm. idea of hitting different nodes. Right. So I think in traditional therapy, there's this idea of meeting the patient where they're at mm-hmm. and don't ask them to do too much and mm-hmm. just have them do whatever they want to do and mm-hmm. it's just the 50-minute session once a week and don't don't be too demanding on them. 
And I think one of the best things I've learned from David is this idea that, no, like we need to do what's effective. Right. And so patients have to be willing to come to us and right. do what we think is going to be necessary. And that might involve reading certain books. It might involve you mean doing, like feeling good? Feeling good. <laughs> and, and, the the book. and the antidepressant book? And the antidepressant book. Only those two books. <laughs> <laughs> over and over. But reading certain books, doing certain written exercises, coming in for two-hour sessions, <laughs> Uh, doing physical exercise. We're having exposure a lot therapy. exposure therapy. We're hitting lots of different nodes. Exactly. We're having a lot of energy into the system very quickly. And I wonder if that's part of why this model tends to be so effective is we get results, I think, in my experience, faster than a lot of other models. And I wonder if part of it is we're hitting a lot of different nodes and we're really attacking Or maybe hitting one node, central node, with many different forms of energy. Sure. And then it kind of kind of jumps into a different, you know, setting. Yeah. But but if you think of each frame as being a node, then by definition what you're doing is you're hitting many, oh, see, many yeah. nodes right, at the same time. The yeah. there, there is just one last thing that I wanted to say about antidepressants. I, I, I totally get it, that people get to a point where all they want to do is turn down the volume on the demons. The problem is that the part of your prefrontal cortex that says it's a tiger and the part of your prefrontal cortex that says it's not a tiger, the part of your prefrontal cortex that he has let's call them positive values, the part that has, let's call them negative values, they all use the same transmitters. So, yeah, somebody wants to turn down the volume on the demons, but by using things like antidepressants, what they're doing is also turning down the volume of the angels. And, indeed, one of the things that you see frequently with people taking antidepressants is an emotional flattening. They're not becoming happy. They're becoming less miserable. But less miserable is not the equivalent of happiness. And there may be, I think there are very clear structural reasons why that's the case. And if that's right, then these chemical approaches to treating depression never, ever are going to work as well as Team CBT because what you do in Team CBT, to go back to one of my conclusions, is you're going in and doing the most advanced forms of microneurosurgery on individual neural networks using the most sophisticated tool that the human species has, which is language, which gives you the opportunity to intervene with a level of specificity that people in neuroscience don't even know how to dream about in organisms as complex as mammals. So I think that's you all are amazing microneurosurgeons. <laughs> yes, and what a, what a beautiful comment to close this delightful presentation. And thank you so much, Mark, for sharing your, your brilliant mind and uh, creative thinking. And we, we look forward to uh, part two and at some point in the future. Well, David, thank you. Thank, thank all of you for, for being willing to, uh, to engage in this. And I look forward to all feedback. Okay, so that was uh, Mark Noble's presentation to our Tuesday group. So now, Mark, I would like to invite you to to add uh, some comments you had to make uh, on this presentation. And David, also, if you could chime in, 
Um, Mark, I thought that uh, one thing you wanted to talk about was uh, the emotions and cognitions. Well, yeah, I thought that that might be interesting to pursue a little more because these are these are such complicated words. They have so many different layers of meaning to different people, and the the interplay between cognition and emotion is so critical to cognitive and behavioral therapy. So, I thought, um, perhaps it would be helpful to people to to explore this a little bit and particularly in a conversation with the two of you. So, so the things that, are, that, are, that seem important to me are that emotions are not a logical deduction from facts. There's something that is actually represented differently in the brain, and they arise in different ways. So there, and, and in fact, I, th- I think it's fair to say that emotions most often are reactions, maybe always reactions to varying mixtures of external events and internal states. They're also very immediate in their appearance. Now, as, as I understand, the, the core of cognitive and behavioral therapy is, is you can use truth statements, um, various types of, of facts to modify emotions. And, and the way in which you do that is part of what made me so interested in Team CBT to begin with. But... Well, let, let, let me uh, let me pose a Look question to you there, um, uh, and David, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, our model in uh, cognitive therapy is that uh, uh, our thoughts and beliefs are the cause of our emotions. Yes, the, there's a necessary and sufficient condition for emotional upset, and there's a necessary and sufficient condition for emotional change. Although you've pointed out. The, the logic here could be refined a little bit, but just to keep it simple, the necessary condition to be emotionally upset, and I mean sad or angry or anxious or ashamed or whatever, depressed, is, is to have a thought and, and to believe that thought pretty close to 100%. So right now, if you put the thought in your mind, you know, we're about to be hit by a, a meteor that's going to blow the earth apart, you can put that thought in your mind, but since you don't believe it, it won't influence you. But it, but if you have a negative thought, you believe like, you know, I'm really kind of a failure as a human being, you believe that 100%, you're going to feel a lot of agony, uh, a lot of shame, a, a lot of a lot of depression. And, uh, and so it's not so much what's happening to us, but the interpretations we make, which I assume can be happening up there in the uh, cerebral cortex. Then the necessary and sufficient condition for emotional change is that you develop a positive thought that challenges that negative thought. And that positive thought, the necessary and sufficient condition, it has to be 100% true. Like half-truths or rationalizations could, could never help a human being. And, and in addition, it has to crush the negative thought. It has to put the light of the negative thought. The very instant that you stop believing the negative thought, in that very instant, your emotions will change. And the way I have always thought about it is these are messages going from the cerebral cortex down to the emotional centers in the brain. You're, you're suggesting the amygdala might be extremely uh, extremely important in, 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 in that. Uh, 
So that that's our, our kind of working framework, you know, for, for better or, or for worse. And that framework has been around for 2,000, 2,500 years. It doesn't mean it's valid, but, but that's, that, that's kind of the basis of cognitive therapy. Was that when Albert Ellis first proposed it, 2,000 years ago? Well, that was, uh, that <laughs> was, was pretty old. Yes. The, the Buddha, then Epictetus, <laughs> and then uh, Shakespeare was Albert. talking like that. And then earlier in this century, Abraham Lowell was a physician yeah. who started Recovery Incorporated. Right. He had kind of a simple version of right. that, too. And then Ellis came along, or, yeah, or, or uh, yeah, Albert Ellis, and then Tim Beck, and a host of others. So, so, so here's, here's what I'm trying to, to um, reconcile that kind of view with. The there's there's been a lot of discussion, uh, for example, from people like Antonio Damasio and Joseph Ledoux as to how we might productively look at the origins of emotions. And one of the ideas that's emerging is that emotions are not only separate from cognitive processes in the way they develop, but they're actually structurally separate. Oh, yeah. And, right, so, so there are some experiments that, that have been done with people who, who have um, lesions in the brain. For example, there's a very famous woman who has, very rare has bilateral lesions to the amygdala on both sides of her brain. And she can identify things that are fear-inducing, but she does not feel fear. There are studies on people with lesions in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex who can identify that they are experiencing a painful stimulus, but they don't have an emotional reaction to it. So what, what, has, what struck me so much about the, the way in which you and your colleagues approach um, defeating cognitive distortions is that the types of statements that you use are very closely connected to um, values frames and emotions frames, that you're not saying something cold and dry like two plus two is four. You're bringing in language and examples that connects to truth values with tremendous importance, that, but, but also connects generally to emotional perceptions of the world. So I, I guess I, I have this, this idea to, to explore together that maybe you could, you could state it like a, a law of motion, that an in, emotion in at rest or an emotion in motion can only be changed by a another emotional input of equal or greater strength. And I wonder if that's one of the areas where Team CBT gets things so right and approaches to psychotherapy that drill down on fact, 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 without bringing in this very sophisticated appeal to emotional frames, actually tend to fail. I think I'm also wondering, yeah, please. I was going to say, I think there's probably some significant research, and Fabrice may know more about it, 
but that uh, emotion is really important in psychotherapy and, and psychotherapy without emotion is going to be pretty flat and not have much impact on people. That's, that's really supporting what, what you're saying. And, and when I'm doing psychotherapy, I see two kinds of emotion uh, that, that, are, that are seem crucial. One are the, the tears and the sadness, the period in the therapy where the, 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 the feelings co come out and that pre prevents a causes a kind of bonding between the patient and, and the therapist. But also, I, I use a lot of the emotion of, of laughter uh, when, when I'm doing psychotherapy. And, and I think emotional activation is, is crucial. I also think that uh, motivation is crucial. I, I'm, I'm thinking like a tripartite theory. You've got, you know, cog the cognitive part of the brain that's sending messages to the parts of the amygdala or wherever is creating emotions. And then there's reciprocal pathways too, where heightened negative emotions seem to cause more negative uh, cognitions. But also the whole idea of, of motivation is, and resistance is, is, is so powerful because if, if people don't want to give up a negative emotion, even if, if you're using powerful change techniques, they, they, will, they will thwart, thwart your efforts. So some part of the brain somewhere in the model, you know, I'd, I'd love to see uh, you know, resistance and motivation uh, pl plugged in there because it's massively important on a practical level. And, and so there must be some brain, you know, correlate of, of that. I, 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 I agree. I think that's one of the, the, the very interesting insights from, from what you've been doing. So I, 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 I try, I, I guess I would phrase it in, in a different way that, that, Maybe it's maybe as you say that they are located in, in in different regions of the brain, and that we think of resistance as an emotional state, or, or maybe more as a mood that that has an existence that's independent of the issue that's being discussed. And what you're doing in paradoxical agenda setting is is capitalizing on the existence of the resistance itself. So now you're harnessing the resistance for a different purpose, which I think is congruent with your interpretation. So would, would it be possible to say that maybe resistance is analogous to a fuel, but it's not a compass? It's not a navigator. But it, yeah, it's, I love that. Yeah, that's great. It's kind of the, the, the fuel that's, that's <clears throat> pushing the engine in one, one direction or, or, or another, unless you deal with that fuel it's going to keep causing certain certain things to happen uh kind of protecting a negative homeostasis as you were talking about in in, in your in in your talk maybe part of what keeps people in the valley of of, of, of depression i'm kind of lame because my knowledge is pretty pretty limited here but fabrice will enlighten us with a tremendously wise comment at this point <laughs> i wish um but um, what, I'm, what I was hearing you um, uh, indicate, Mark, is that um, there, there are other factors that influence the, the structures of the brain that uh, create emotion more than simply the, uh, the, the cognitive aspect that uh, comes from the prefrontal cortex. That, that, that's exactly right. And to say again, emotion is not a deduction. Mm -hmm. And... The, I wonder whether the reason why the, um, 
self-defeating beliefs and the cognitive distortions are so effective in their ability to create a, a state of depression is because they're so freighted with emotional values. Right? You don't get depressed because somebody tells you that you know, three plus three has to equal six. That doesn't make you unhappy and miserable. But there are many things that people can tell you that, that make you miserable. And, and maybe when you get into a, a chronic state of unhappiness, just, just like in chronic pain, we treat chronic pain very differently than we treat acute pain. And it's a different, it's recognized as a different kind of physiological problem. So maybe the, the acute reactions of emotions to particular events can be handled in one way, maybe even can be, be defeated by, by cold facts. Like the envelope that you got that you thought was going to reject you from entry into the school you wanted, you open it up and you got accepted and you go from misery to happiness in an instant with a cold, with a fact, but maybe in a state of, of chronic depression, a long-lasting depression, maybe that's more like a chronic pain state, which fits in with this idea that emotional pain and physical pain are mapping to the same parts of the brain in study after study. And, and David, I, I thought that, that that was so interesting in terms of a story that you had told me about your work on the relationship between pain and depression. Because what's becoming clear is that if you can, if you look at people where you can modify the depression state, you can change the pain state. And you had done work like that a long time ago. Yeah, and, and on, I, I did three, three studies looking at the causal connections between pain and, and mood states, not just depression, but depression, anxiety, and anger. And essentially, what, what the I did three different studies that all showed the same thing, is that about half of physical pain that people experience results from emotional distress that that they're that they're feeling that that that, that they're they're angry they're they're upset about something that can either cause or greatly magnify physical pain and and before i ever did the research i i had a personal experience that you know un underscored this when i was a medical student i was having some beer with a friend in a bar in palo alto and a fight broke out and somebody threw this uh, beer mug or something at somebody who ducked. And I looked, I saw it coming toward my jaw in slow motion and it exploded on my jaw and all this blood came gushing out of my mouth and my teeth were loose and I realized I had a broken jaw and, and I ran out to my old VW and drove to the Stanford emergency room and went in there and I said, I'm a medical student, I've got a broken jaw. And, and so they, they set me down there on the gurney and they were examining me and doing this and that. And I was kind of upset and angry and agitated and, and the pain was just excruciating. And, uh, and I was probably a terrible patient. You know, I was high from having had a couple of beers and I was probably agitated or whatever. But then they've brought in a plastic surgeon and, and, and he said, listen, I've looked at the x-rays of your jaw and you've got a broken jaw and, and we're going to uh, keep you in the hospital tonight and I'm going to operate on you in the morning and it's not too big a deal, but we're going to wire your jaw shut. And, uh, 
and you'll be have a and be you'll have to drink through a straw and stuff for about you know six or eight eight weeks and then I said am I going to lose my teeth and he said there are several of them are loose and and I don't think you're going to lose them I think they'll be okay but after we unwire your jaw in six or eight weeks then we'll send you to an orthopedic person who can kind of look at your at your teeth and then he put his hand on my shoulder and he said now listen I don't want you to be in pain tonight so I've ordered powerful pain shots for you and you can take as many as you you want uh, and the moment he put his hand on my shoulder and said that all of a sudden the pain completely disappeared it was the most amazing thing and I never ordered any of the pain shots because I didn't have any any pain last left and so that was proof of what you're alluding to Mark here that the uh, pain and emotion circuits in the brain may be interacting with each other overlapping overlapping in, in some way because there there is certainly a huge impact of uh, of emotions on on physical pain and then what the later research showed is about half the pain that people feel even if they have arthritis even if there's a clear medical cause for the pain or like mine it was a clear medical cause at least half of the pain that people feel results from all the emotional upset that accompanies the pain and then if, yeah go ahead it's great I, fi I find it so interesting there's there's papers that are that have been appearing on how affective touch actually activates certain parts of the opioid system. So there's even ideas beginning to emerge about how the, the circuitry of affective interactions, physical interactions, may work to alleviate pain states, which is for anybody who's raised a kid, we know that that's something we see all the time. Well, that's great, and I think, Fabrice, we're going to do a podcast uh, soon on the treatment of chronic pain, and we'll go more into yeah. this this connection. Yeah. Right. So, so I know that, that people have been now at this stage listening for a long time, and we should, we should give them a break, but I, I think in terms of, of just one of the, the topics that, that we discussed at the Tuesday group meeting, that, that it's, it's important to... to suggest to listeners that there is a vigorous and complex discussion going on about antidepressants. There are many arguments um, for their use. There are many arguments against their use. And we may want to do a deep dive at some point into what I think are some very serious problems with the clinical trials data. But one of the things that, that, I'm, that I'm seeing over and over again is that when people come off antidepressants, some proportion of people, perhaps a significant proportion of people, have what's called a discontinuation syndrome. And they feel really bad. And interestingly, in terms of this, this model, um, CBT can be very helpful in actually alleviating some of the problems with this discontinuation syndrome. But for for any listeners who are thinking of coming off antidepressants, I mean, I'm not a doctor. This is just from the perspective of a scientist who studies the brain, that it, it seems like one would do this by tapering off, by working with your therapist, with your doctor, and make sure that they're aware that you're doing this, by, by not just um, 
jumping off the wagon, as it were. I and mean, some people can do that. Some people can stop cold. But, but many people seem to require slow tapering off. There's a lot of information on this on the web. And for anyone who, who considers going down this path, it's something that you should be explored and pursued in a knowledgeable way if, if someone wants to do this. But you're the doctor, David. How do you, what do you think? Yeah, well, just now, don't ever play around with your medications without consulting with your phys- physician and would have a expertise in doing that. And I would add also that uh, another hard drug to get off of are the benzodiazepines, which are intensely addictive, the, the minor tranquilizers that are given out for anxiety disorders. And if you take them for three weeks or more and then you try to withdraw, you'll go into intense anxiety and insomnia. And, and, and then you and your doctor will wrongly conclude that you, you need to stay on these, these drugs. And so there's real problems there. Uh, but, but there was a study at Harvard, this was quite a few years ago, but they took two groups of patients. One slowly tapered off of the benzodiazepines, you know, with state-of-the-art Harvard psychopharmacologists. And the other group had the same treatment of slow taper along with cognitive therapy. This was before team therapy existed. But the results were pretty dramatic that very few people in the discontinuation alone without the the, the psychotherapy support I think something like only 20% of the patients managed to get off of the uh, uh, Xanax or Clonopin, which were the drugs they were testing. And then the group that got the cognitive therapy plus slow discontinuation, I think about 80% of the patients uh, successfully were able to withdraw and become become drug-free. Drug so that certainly reaffirmed what you were saying, Mark, about the importance of of the human connection, even in even in, in drug drug management or, or, or drug with withdrawal, uh, and and that you that you shouldn't be playing around with going off of medicines suddenly on your own because they're even if a medicine hasn't been helpful for you, there there still can be severe toxic side effects when when you withdraw from it too too quickly. In fact, you might you might say that that even though you may not have had a, a chemical imbalance at the time you started taking these drugs, after you've been taking them for a week or two, you probably do have a chemical imbalance, and if you jump off them, you're going to feel that. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That. And even though the uh, the SSRI antidepressants may not be helpful for many, many people. They, they are thousands of times more powerful than the antidepressants we, we had 40 years ago, like, uh, you know, uh, Tofranil, Elevil, uh, Amitriptyline, those kind of drugs weren't as, as powerful in glomming onto these brain receptors. And, and the drug companies created drugs that have tremendously powerful effects on brain serotonin receptors. And even though that doesn't in many, many cases lead to any improvement in depression, there, it's still when you go off of them, then the brain goes into, into rebound. It, it tries to, to fight back because it's been pushing so hard against th- these clogged up receptors from, from, the, uh, from the antidepressants, and then you get rid of the antidepressants. It, it causes this huge perturbation in, in the brain and can create all kinds of uh, un- unpleasant withdrawal effects. And David and Fabrice, I just want to to say that you know, we, we, we have this long history in neuroscience of using um, injuries, lesions, illnesses 
in order to try and figure out the structures of the brain. And when you look at the power of something like Team CBT, I, you know, I think you have to look at that as a neuroscientist and say, my goodness, how is this working? If we understand how this is working, it's going to teach us so much about how the brain works. So, and you've gotten here by these tremendous empirical paths of studying what works in human beings. It, it's truly an extraordinary accomplishment. And um, I hope that the listenership grows out to the millions and the episodes go on to multiple hundreds. Thanks so much and good luck with your new book as well as your ongoing fantastic research on on, on the brain and brain tumors and all, all this awesome stuff you're doing. Well, yeah, thank you, Mark. And uh, this was a little bit of a of a departure from the typical podcasts that we present. So I'm sure that people will probably write us with some questions that uh, neither David or I can answer. Is it okay if we funnel those uh, toward you as they come in? You know, absolutely. I'd be happy to do that, that, that you know, that, that, that David, of course, any questions on Team CBT and, and Fabrice, if somebody wants to argue about whether we really should be referring to the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex as opposed to a different region of it, that I leave that in your hands. You, you, yeah. <laughs> I, I have very strong opinions about this. <laughs> okay, well, have a great evening, everybody, thank and thanks. Guys. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, that was a, a great uh, conversation. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.